You know, the fact of the matter is that we know what it's like to pray and not see the things that we're looking for happening. But when we see God breaking through, when we see the kingdom of God breaking into our reality, into the here and now, suddenly this Christian thing is not just a bunch of well-meaning people on the top of a science museum having a little bit of a, a shindig together, a little holy clappy-clap time. It suddenly becomes about individuals experiencing the raw, untrammeled power of God, the divine love of God breaking through like sunshine breaking through clouds to show us how good God is and how much God loves us. The story that we're going to look at this evening is the story, the parable, is sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. And it's a parable that Jesus told in a particular set of circumstances. And tonight, there's not going to be anything clever. There's not going to be anything tricksy. We're literally just going to read the story together. And as we go through it, we're going to try and read it in such a way that we hear it through the ears of those who heard it when Jesus first originally spoke it through first century Near Eastern ears. And we're going to hear it through our own ears in the 21st century and what it means to us. But the context is everything. You need to hear what Jesus is, um, what situation he's in when he tells this story. And the reason that we're going to a story is, like I said, it's so hard to explain how good God is. And sometimes it takes more than just words and explanation and doctrine. It actually takes a story because in a story we find ourselves in a story we identify in a story it invokes and engages us on an emotional visceral level so we're going to go through this story because this is Jesus saying this is my best shot at telling you what God is like so this is how this story starts it says this now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them and then Jesus Jesus told them this parable. So in this scenario, you've got two groups of people. You've got tax collectors. Now, tax collectors are not traditionally particularly, I mean, today we love tax collectors, right? Um, but, uh, you know, back in biblical days, these were people who had literally sold out the whole country. The country is under the thumb of the Roman empirical oppression. And uh, tax collectors are basically collaborators with the colonizing oppressors. They are shady. It's a kind of organized crime network. It's a scam that they run in cahoots with the Roman government. Essentially, they are social outcasts. They are cut off from all polite society. They're the worst, the lowest, the scum of the earth. And then sinners is a catch-all phrase that people in those days used for people that were just morally reprehensible. You know, we're talking about people on the absolute utter margins. And the Bible says that Jesus is so good that he's with those people. He's not saying, I condemn you. He's not saying, I reject you. He's saying, I want to eat with you. I want to share with you. I want to be with you. And so you've got this group of people, Pharisees, the ultra-religious, ultra-orthodox keepers of the faith. And they look at Jesus and they're saying, how can you possibly eat with sinners? That's a sign of endorsing them. Birds of a feather flock together. You are giving validity to their irreligiousness. How can you do that and call yourself a holy man? And Jesus says, I, I want to talk to you so-called sinners. And I want to talk to you so-called religious people. And I'm going to do it all within this one story. And if we aspire to anything as a church, it's to be a church where you can be here or you can be watching online 
whether you are someone who would not call yourself a religious church kind of person, or whether you're someone that deeply desires to be a follower of Christ. We want to hit both audiences together because that's where Jesus lived his life. That's where Jesus was super comfortable. And Metro is always a place where, listen, if you're not into faith or if you have questions about faith, you call yourself an atheist or an agnostic or you're not even sure or you're just on the outside looking in, we want you to feel completely, totally comfortable and at home here. No condemnation, no criticism, criticism, just acceptance. Let's eat, let's talk, let's share together. And for those of us wanting to pursue our faith, we actually, we want to be pushing one another forward as well. And so Jesus has a story for both kinds of people. He actually tells two stories as a lead up to this, a parable of a good shepherd who loses a sheep and a parable of a woman who loses a coin. And then he moves on to this story. He says this, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is a story of two sons. And the younger son says, I want my inheritance now. Now, this instantly becomes a shocking story. In fact, this is a story of ongoing escalation. It's kind of like Breaking Bad, in that it starts with this incredible premise, and then it just spirals into more and more grievous and tense situations and scenarios. But it starts off with this shocker. Younger son saying to his father, I want my share of the inheritance. Now, there's two boys. The maths works out like this. Middle, Near East, first century. The firstborn son gets twice what everyone else gets. And so with just two sons, it means when the father dies, the eldest son gets two-thirds of the estate. The younger son gets one-third of the estate. But it happens when the father dies. And it's not about something that's in the bank. It's not a portfolio of assets. It's literally the land. The land is what the family has as their inheritance. It's their heritage. It's what's been handed down from father to son down through the ages. And an incredible break from protocol. The younger son says, I want my third now. I want to get it now. I want it now. I want what I'm going to get when you die right now. In other words, what he's saying to his father is he's saying, I want what you've got, but I don't want you. I want what you own, but I don't want you. I reject you. And when the Pharisees hear this story, when they hear this kind of premise, they immediately, their hackles rise. They think, the father should do this thing. We know how this story ends. We know where this goes. This is highly unusual, but this is how the story ends. The father beats the son and disowns him entirely, bringing such shame upon the family. But Jesus says, the father divides up the estate. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus used for estate, the property, is literally bios, which means his life, his living. Because what he was giving them was everything, his substance, everything 
his livelihood, his whole life, his whole reputation. In order to give the son what he wanted, he had to literally sell off a third of all the property that the family had as their inheritance so that this son could liquidize those assets. Now they go to someone else in the village, a rival, someone else, bringing tremendous shame upon the father and the family. And yet the father says, I won't hold on. I'll let you go. You can take what you have and you can go. Many people today, we want what God has. We want what God can give, but we don't want God. We want God. You know, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything that's good in this world, it comes from God. And we want all the good things, but we don't want relationship with God. We want life and health and happiness. We want love and relationship and fulfillment. We want meaning and joy and pleasure and delight. We want the good things in life that come from God. But by and large, most people in our culture and our society say we don't want God. We want all the good things that God has created and made for us in this wonderful world of his. But we don't want him. And then the story goes. He moves away, goes to this foreign country. Wild living. That's what prodigal means. It means stupid extravagance. I mean, just like (laughs) spending like there's no tomorrow until there is no tomorrow. And he finds himself in need. And then in the very edges of his humiliation, he has to hire himself out to another farm owner, a land owner. And this one keeps pigs because they're not good Jewish people. Jews do not have anything to do with pigs. The pig is unclean. And so for a Jewish boy from a well-to-do family to be feeding pigs and caring for pigs is the worst of the low. And to get to the point where actually I want to eat what the pigs are eating because I am so hungry. And what this is, this is a good story. This is a good story. The Pharisees have been freaked out, but now it is all good. Because what this is a story of, this is a story of karma. Karma is... You get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. And that's why the Pharisees at this point in the story, they're rubbing their hands and they're saying, oh, Jesus, you had us going there for a minute. It was a horrible story. But everything worked out in the end. And there are many of us, so many of us, that have a kind of karmic outlook on life. We want to live in a world where you get what you deserve. People get what they deserve deserve. If you are bad, if you are wrong, if you are venal, if you are unkind, abusive, you will get your comeuppance. That's karma. And so much of religion, almost all religion, is based on karma. You get what you deserve. Oh, wise one, tell me what do I do in order to get what I need? Well, you've got to do good. You've got to have the good things that you do outbalance the bad things that you do. Otherwise, you will come to a place like this younger son where you get what you deserve and you find yourself with nothing. Hungry, desperate, no one gave him anything. That's karma. And sometimes people think, well, that's what Christianity is like. That somehow I've got to balance the books before God. You know, sometimes people think, I don't really do the church thing, but I try to be a good person person. Because if I'm good, then I can weigh out the bad. I was speaking to someone just recently, and they were saying, you know, my, my approach before coming to church was, you know, I, I try to do good, and hopefully, if there is a God, then when I die and I have to stand before him, then he'll look at all the good things that I've done, and uh, he'll allow me to get into the afterlife, or whatever it may be, 
Because I think, broadly speaking, I've done more good than bad. It's karma. You get what you deserve. We want to know that there's justice in the universe. We want to know that there's a morality in the universe that holds up. That bad people get what they deserve for the bad things that they do. And if you just keep on the right side, then good things will come to you. And almost every religion has that thing built into it. Karma, you get what you deserve. But Jesus says, yeah, you might think that's good news, that you can earn your way into uh, good books and that evil people get treated as they deserve. But he says, the good news is better than that. It's way better than that. And he goes on. He says this, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. What you have here is better than karma. With karma, I get what I deserve. With karma, you get what you deserve. With karma, we get what's coming to us. But this son has a belief, an idea, a hope against hope. And he's looking for something else. And that is called mercy. With mercy, you don't get what you deserve. He says to himself, if I can go back to my father. He says, there's a kind of change of mind, a change of heart, a coming to his senses. Literally, it means he came to himself. He, 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 like, he came to. He suddenly realized what an idiot he'd been and how good he'd really had it all along. And he says, listen, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, my father will show mercy on me. Right now I'm suffering from karma, the cosmic karma that gives me what I deserve. But maybe there's a universe, maybe there's a scenario where I could experience mercy, where I should be rejected, I should be thrown out, but I could receive forgiveness, mercy. He says, I'm going to say to my father, would you forgive me? I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. I messed up. I, I, I got it wrong. I, I, I messed up. But could you make me like one of your hired servants? What's a hired servant? Well, a hired servant is different from the servant that the landowner has in their house. Those would be indentured servants. Servants that literally are part of the household. Maybe they had to work off a debt, and so they sold themselves into a kind of slavery, but it was a benign slavery. It was essentially like you become that living servant, and you live in with the landowner. And he takes care of you, provides for you, and feeds you, and houses you, and clothes you, and, and maybe gets you uh, set up, and gets you a, a wife, and a family, and all those kinds of things. But you work for him. You're his man. But the son says, I'm not going to go for that. I, I don't think that I can be in the household with my father, but I'm going to be a hired servant. A hired servant is the casual laborer. The casual laborer that you bring in when you need extra help with the harvest. The person that you draft in when there's more work to be done and you pay them a day rate. And actually what you do then in the culture is you also feed them. You take care of them. He's saying, well, my dad has hired servants, hired hands. They have more than enough food. They have bread to spare. I mean, he gives them like way over the top provisions. He's so generous. Maybe he can forgive me. And maybe I can, I don't know. I, I, I won't come into the house, but he'll be, he'll be there. But I'll somehow 
at least get what regular people who are not part of the family, not part of the household, get. Maybe there's an idea that he could work off some of his debt. Maybe he had an idea that, you know, I'll take in money and I'll pay, but obviously I can't pay all of it back. I can't even get close, but I'll pay some of it back. And what this model of faith is, it's what most Christians have. Most people that call themselves Christians have a kind of model that God is a God of mercy and God is a God of forgiveness. For us, we relate to Jesus as my Savior. He saves me from my sin. Jesus died on the cross so I can be forgiven. So I don't have to suffer the punishment, the consequences of my sin, that I can be forgiven, set free. The slate can be wiped clean. God will show me mercy. I won't get what I deserve. Because deep down, I know that the karma thing is no kind of way to live your life. Because none of us really stack up if we're brutally honest about ourselves. We all fall short. We're all contaminated. But we believe that God is merciful. And for so many of us as Christians, we have a model of faith is that I will approach God and I will ask him to forgive me for my sin. But he's still a little bit remote. Actually, he may not be the full focus of my life. He becomes a part of my life. And I do my work, and I do my relationships, and I do my dreams, and I do my finances, and, and I do all of life, and God is a part of it, but he's off there in the house on the hill, and I'm here, and I'm just doing my bit for him. He's forgiven me, and I'm grateful, and I'm so, so glad that he's done that. He's so good, so good, so good. And I will try to, to do things for him, like a, a higher ling. And I'll come to church and, and I'll, I'll do the right things and I'll, I'll pray and, I, and, and I'll give and I'll, I'll do those things. And my relationship with God is, is, not, is not mega close, but I know that he's there and I'm connected with him. And, and that is mercy. And it's reasonable, right? I mean, how many of us, I don't want you to put your hand up, but think about your own life. Think about how many of us have that view of God. There's someone that forgives us and we're so relieved that we don't have to pay their own penalty for our own sin. We know that we are eternally secure. But God is in the house over there and we are doing our thing over here. And we'll try and do the right thing and, and be connected with him. But God is someone that we have at arm's length because that's the best that we could hope for. Jesus says, that's good. But it's not remotely as good as what the real father is. And so he carries on the story and it just gets way, way more incredible. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round and kissed him. This word compassion, it's a gut-wrenching, incredible outpouring of pure emotion. We don't have any word quite like this word. In fact, the word that's used for compassion in Scripture is a word that's only ever used of God. It's only ever used of God, the Father, or it's only ever used of God, the Son, Jesus. It's a word of such powerful emotion. It means that the Father, far off from being, you know, well, I had a son, my younger son, who was a bit of a bust. The guy was, he, 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 he massively disrespected me. But, you know, you, you, you get over it. No, this is a father that never stopped looking. This is a father that saw from a long distance. And as he sees him, 
Something in him has just moved beyond words. It says he's filled with compassion, and then he runs to his son. And at this point, the Pharisees, their heads just start to explode. Because in that culture, in that day, you don't run. You don't run if you are anything to do with anything. If you are respected, you don't run. Children run. Young men may run. The women, the women can run. But an old guy, they don't run. You don't run. It's like seeing the queen running. You know, she, she doesn't run. She just does things, but shaking, waving horses. No running. It's, it's ridiculous. And yet he's running against all social convention, against all that is expected of him. He runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. And you can see the people coming out of their houses as the old man from the house on the hill comes barreling down the road and he's kicking up a dust cloud with his sandals, his beard flapping in the breeze, the tears streaking down his face. And then he falls on the sun like a rain cloud raining down, kisses upon him. Like the storm that we've just experienced, that kind of thunderclap rainstorm of love and of and unbelievable emotion. And Jesus says, this is what God is like. This is what your father is like. He goes on. He says, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. But this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What is the robe? What is the ring? What is the sandal? What is going on here is that the son is getting everything that he should not get. First of all, he gets a robe. Because the father says, you're covered in rags and sores and the the dust and dirt of the road clings to you and I want to cover you. And so when we talk about the forgiveness of God, and Sam's going to come and develop some of this in the next couple of weeks, we talk about this word, atone or covering. It's, It's the things that I am ashamed of, my brokenness, my failures, my sinfulness, my lust, my depravity, my greed, my envy, my venality, it's all covered so that when God looks at me, he sees someone, a child, wearing the best robe in the house. And then with the sandal, it's about God giving us a sense of purpose and direction and meaning and fulfillment. But the ring, the ring's like an engagement ring. The ring is the signet ring of authority. In the days in which Jesus speaks, the ring symbolizes everything that the Father has. All his authority, all his uh, say-so. You sign something with that signet ring. You show people that ring, and that is total authority. He's saying, son, I want you to reign with me. I'm not just going to have you as a hired hand. I bring you in. I bring you into my heart, and I give you everything that you should not have. It's like an engagement ring. It's the strongest sign of love and authority that he can give to his child. And then they say, we're going to celebrate. You have no idea how good God is. 
until you get a glimpse of this divine, heavenly, cosmic party. Jesus says the kingdom of God is a party. You see me here eating, drinking, laughing, dancing with sinners and tax collectors. It's just a shadow of what is to come, of what God has for those of us that he looks forward to. That this celebration that comes out of the heart of God. Do you know in those days, um, they didn't eat meat. Meat was like a, a, just too rich. It was too much of a delicacy. They would just eat common vegetables. About 10 years ago, I was in um, Zimbabwe. We were doing some stuff. I was there with a little team. And as a church, we'd been supporting. We'd, we'd given hundreds of thousands to this particular organization. And uh, part of it was supporting rural development and village development. So it was education and empowerment and, and helping form businesses and, and helping people just get out of poverty. And one of the things that we were doing was we were providing these community gardens and uh, healthcare and we were building schools and paying teachers and all this kind of stuff. And I got to go around and see it, it was amazing. And this one pastor, this uh, Zimbabwean pastor was showing me around. We got to this very, very poor rural house. And uh, he told me all about what they did and how they made their money. And here's their olive press. And they press the olives and make olive oil and they sell it. And that's how they subsist. And I thought, man alive, this guy knows a lot about this family. And then it took me about 15 minutes to realize this was his family. This pastor, who was my peer and colleague, was living in abject poverty like I'd never seen before. And then he says, um, you must eat. We have chicken for you. I said, oh, we're really sorry, but we, we've got to go on. We, we've got to see the next project. He says, please, you must eat. And then another guy, the driver, he taps me on the shoulder and says, trust me, eat. And so we eat this chicken. Honestly, fried chicken in Zimbabwe, in the jungle, in the bush. It was the best chicken I think I've ever had. And then we go away and we wave. And the driver says, it's good that you ate the chicken because they only eat it once. I said, what do you mean? They only have meat once. Seriously? They only have meat once a week. Oh, my giddy aunt. No wonder. I'm glad that I said this. No, 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 no. You don't understand. They only have meat once a year. You just ate their Christmas meal. They killed that chicken to celebrate you. And so not only is it meat, but it's the fattened calf. And what the Father is saying here, excuse me, I can't get through this. The Father is saying, this is the happiest day of my life. He's so good. He's so good. He's so good. He says, I don't care where you've been and I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've slept with. I don't care what you've been up to. I'm just glad that you're here and you're my son. And I lavish everything that I have upon you. What do we call this? It's not karma. You get what you deserve. It's not mercy. You get what you don't. You don't get what you deserve. It's grace. With grace, you get what you don't deserve. But God is so good. I am so far from him. I'm so broken. Even when he's shown, I've lived my Christian life for decades, and I still, at the flick of a switch, at the click of my fingers, I'll betray my Lord, and I'll live a life that I know disappoints him. And he welcomes me in. He gives me grace. And that's not the end of the story. 
because it goes on. It says this. Meanwhile, the elder brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you and never disobeyed your orders. Yeah, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your profit, property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then he ends the story. What happens next? Cliffhanger. I need resolution. I need closure. What happens to the son? And Jesus says, it's not about the son. It's about you. What happens to you? The fact of the matter is, if I'm completely honest, it doesn't take a huge leap of faith for you to get this anyway. You know this. If I'm honest about myself, I'm more older brother than younger brother. I was brought up as a Christian. I knew from an early age. I had it demonstrated to me, and I didn't really wander that far from it. Sure, I made it my own. Yes, I had my own experience of God, but I'm much more like the older brother. Some of you, you can identify with the younger brother because you've been away and you know what it's like to be really far away from God and really messed up and really out there. And you've experienced something else. And what happens here is that the younger son experiences a grace encounter. He experiences the grace of his father, that the father gives him what he doesn't deserve. He doesn't deserve the ring. He doesn't deserve the robe. He doesn't deserve the party. He doesn't deserve the love and the joy. But he has a grace encounter. And yet the older son is just as alienated from his father as the younger one is. Neither of them know how good the Father is. And Jesus is saying, listen, whether it's with the sinners and the tax collectors or whether it's with the Pharisees, neither of you know how good your Father God is. He's better by far than anything that you can experience. And when the older son says, you have never given me anything. I, I slave for you. I've done all the right things. I've been the good one. Why haven't I had any of this celebration and joy? And the Father says, you need a truth encounter. You need to know the truth. The truth is, everything I have is yours. And for many of us tonight, God wants you to know, everything I have is yours. You're deeply loved. It's not like, boo, the Pharisees. Who do you think Jesus built the church with in the first place? The Pharisee, Paul. The Apostle Paul, who built the early church with those first disciples, he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained under the best. But he had a truth encounter with God. And that is what we want to give you over the course of these next few weeks. We're going to give a truth encounter. But some of you, at the very same time, you're going to experience a grace encounter. And you have to ask yourself the question, who am I most like? Where am I on that spectrum? Older son, younger son. 
For some of us, we're kind of somewhere squarely in the middle. For others, we can identify more with one than the other. But for all of us, we need a truth encounter that's going to reframe my thinking about God. Because if I see God as generous and everything he has is mine, and that he is loving, that he's expansive, that he's not grim, that he's not remote, that he is better than I can possibly fathom, then I'm gonna change how I do. And the Father says, all I want for you is to come into the party and to welcome others in. And for us to rejoice, I want to carry you up and capture you up in this divine heavenly joy, which is a foretaste of the great party. We're going to pray right now, but what I'd like us to do uh, before the band come up is I'd just like to pray a simple prayer for those of you that actually are thinking right now, do you know what? I would love to connect with the Father. You know, it may be that you've, you, you're having a moment of, of coming to yourself, coming to your senses, a bit like the younger son. And you say, actually, I want to know what it's like. And, and just like the son had this thing that he, he had to change his direction, move to the Father, looking for mercy, ended up with grace. I want to give you a prayer. And it's a prayer similar to the one that I prayed when I was uh, 16. It's a prayer very similar to the one that I've prayed with literally thousands of people over the years. It's an A, B, C prayer. A, you admit that you need God's help, that you are broken and in need. All of us can admit that. The Bible calls it sin. You might want to call it whatever you want, but you know that it's not being what you want to be. B, you believe that God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to live for you, to die for you, to rise from the dead. It doesn't mean that you understand all the ins and outs just yet, but you have something in you that's saying, yeah, I think this is true. Something inside me feels alive when I hear this stuff. And then C, you commit your life to Jesus. We saw it last week with the baptisms, but you're just saying, I want to be a follower of Christ as he gives me strength. So let's just bow our heads and let's pray. And I'm gonna give you the words of a prayer that has the A, B, C in it. And this is literally for people, if you've never consciously given your life to Jesus before, um, then this is a prayer for you. Also, it's a prayer for you if you feel like you've wandered far from God. Maybe you've become a little bit of a prodigal, but you want to come back now and uh, recommit your life to God. This is a prayer for you. You can pray this in the room. You can pray this at home, online, wherever you are. But I'll do it a little bit at a time, and I'll do it slow enough so that you can hear it, register it, and then internalize it for yourself. So here's the prayer. You pray this prayer. Make it your own. Dear God, you know my life. You know where I've wandered away from you. You know the mistakes I've made. You know the hurt I've picked up. You know my brokenness. But I believe that you love me. I don't understand all of it. But I believe that you love me, that you came to this world for me as Jesus. You died for me. You rose again. And I want you in my life. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for living without you. Come into my life right now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Clothe me with your robe of righteousness.
Put a ring on my finger. Crown me with joy. Sweep me up with love. Help me to live for you. I want to make you my Lord and my King. I offer this simple prayer to you now. In the name of Jesus. Just while everyone's got their eyes closed, I want to pray for everyone that prayed that prayer. So if that's you, just put your hand up if you prayed that prayer, and I'm going to pray for you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Others. Brilliant. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Great. Fantastic. That's about eight or ten of you. You can put your hands down. Father, I pray for the Spirit of the living God to meet with every single one of these individuals who's prayed this prayer. Lord, whether it's for the very first time or whether it's for the hundredth time, I pray you take them at their word that right now you'd impact them with your love, with your presence. Let them know you. And I pray that this would be a turning point, that this would be a day that they mark in their diaries and remember for years to come that this was an opening of a door and you came in. And I pray that they would know right now the Father rejoicing over them with singing, with laughter, with dancing. Capture them up in your heavenly celebration. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.